Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. We had a very big day in the financial markets today with really some significant moves in all sorts of asset classes. You know, starting with the U.S. stock market, all of the major U.S. stock market indexes were down on the day. The biggest loser being the NASDAQ. That was down 1.9%. I think near its lows, it was down about 2.2%. So we did get a little bit of a rally into the close, but all the indexes were down. But internally, there was a bit of a sector rotation out of the momentum names into the more defensive value names. And this potentially could be the beginning of a long overdue reallocation in the market. So we'll see what happens next week if that continues. But, you know, the bigger moves uh, or more significantly in the bond market, uh, bond yields falling to all-time record lows. In fact, the yield on the 30-year is now below 2%. It's at 1.918. And I think this is an all-time record uh, low yield uh, for the 30-year bond. And of course, the U.S. stock market would be much weaker. And today would have been a much bigger down day, but for the rise in the bond market, which is helping to support the valuation of U.S. stocks, right? Because the lower interest rates are, the higher everybody can pretend the fair value is for the U.S. stock market. And of course, a lot of this is being driven uh, by uh, the supposed safe haven buying uh, in treasuries. But again, all the liquidity that is being supplied by foreign central banks and liquidity that people expect to be supplied by the U.S. central banks. But for that, the U.S. stock market would be much, much weaker. It would have been down a lot more, not only on the day, but on the week. I mean, the markets were down on the week. Uh, but up until today, uh, the NASDAQ, at least, you know, that was still positive uh, on the week. And I think uh, so maybe was uh, were the other indexes. But the move is very significant in the bond market. And in fact, you know, on CNBC, 
uh, Bullard uh, from the, the Fed was interviewed uh, and specifically he was asked about rate cuts and, you know, how is it that rate cuts are going to cure coronavirus, right? Which is, of course, what I, I titled uh, a recent podcast, uh, you know, that QE is not going to cure the coronavirus, which it's not. I mean, that's the only cure the Fed has or any central banks have is just print money, create inflation. Uh, but how is that going to work? Because even on this discussion on CNBC, they correctly pointed out that, wait a minute, you know, the problem here is supply, that the Chinese, due to this virus, there may be less production. And America imports a lot of consumer goods from China. And so if these goods are not showing up at the market, isn't that a supply problem? And how does just printing money uh, solve that problem? And, you know, he had to admit that, well, technically it doesn't solve it. Uh, but he says that maybe it helps with the symptoms, but it doesn't. Because if the symptom is a reduction in supply, how does increasing demand for items that are in short supply do any good? Because that's all the Fed is able to do is stoke demand, right? By printing money, people now have more money to go and buy products that, that don't exist, that didn't show up. But in fact, I think somebody on that panel actually asked a sensible question or made a sensible point by talking about the Arab oil embargo in the 1970s, right? That was a supply shock where all of a sudden we didn't get as much oil. And the Fed made the mistake back then of addressing that by printing even more money when, of course, you know, part of the reason for the embargo was we went off the gold standard and the dollar kept losing value. And so OPEC nations didn't want to sell us oil for paper. I mean, we used to pay them gold and then we started paying them paper and paper was falling. Uh, but uh, the Fed at the time looked at the, the negative economic effects of a big jump in oil prices and said, oh, let's print money. And look how that turned out with the stagflation of the 1970s. So if China is a major supplier of consumer goods to the United States and all of a sudden those consumer goods are not here, uh, then why would printing money now in this environment uh, work any differently than printing it back in, in the 1970s? And they even read a note that Peter Bookbar put out, who's you know one of the, the best people that actually shows up on CNBC with any regular basis. In fact, I think he is a contributor. And, you know, I know him. I mean, I, I've met him uh, on many occasions because he has spoken at many of the conferences that I regularly speak at. So he's a pretty good guy as far as, you know, the guests that they allow uh, on CNBC. And he put out a note, which they read, which pretty much is what I'm saying, and that what's happening right now with the coronavirus is inflationary, right? It means that the supply of good goes down. And of course, if the Fed is creating more money, that just throws gasoline on the fire. But people are responding to what the Fed is doing by buying financial assets, particularly they're buying bonds. And there was a separate panel on CNBC today discussing the bond market, right? There's a whole bunch of guys up there and they were... Uh, questioning whether or not the bond market was a bubble, right? I mean, here you have an all-time record high price for bonds. In fact, the yield on the 30-year bond at 1.9 is well below the government's own inflation measure. The CPI, you know, is two point something, right? 2.3, 2.4, whatever it is, right? The headline CPI. 
that number is higher than the yield on U.S. Treasuries. And of course, if you buy U.S. Treasuries in a taxable account, uh, that yield is going to be reduced even further because you're going to pay taxes on it. But the problem is the yield is lower than the inflation rate. And that's the official inflation rate, which in my opinion, dramatically understates the real inflation rate. But even if you forget about that and just accept the government's word for what inflation is, the yield on U.S. Treasuries is negative. At the same time, the U.S. Uh, you know, financial house has never been in worse shape, right? The national debt is 23 trillion and rising rapidly with no end in sight and no appetite in Washington, either from the Democrats or the Republicans to do anything about it, right? So there is no plan or nobody is even pretending to have a plan to uh, bring the deficits down. It's nobody cares. So the fiscal situation has never been this bad. So in other words, the United States has never been less credit worthy than it is right now because we have more debt than ever before and the future trajectory of that debt is going to skyrocket and nobody gives a damn or is even pretending to give a damn. So the question is, if you have the lowest yields in history on U.S. Treasuries right, and therefore the highest price in history, and those yields are negative, meaning that the buyer, if he holds the instrument to maturity, is guaranteed to lose money. And in addition to being guaranteed to lose money, right, and, and, and lending the U.S. government money for 30 years below the current rate of inflation, which historically is low, because normally the inflation is higher than this, and you would expect that over the, the next 30 years that the average rate of inflation would be higher uh, than what it is right now. But in addition to that, in addition to accepting you know, a record low yield, you're accepting that yield when the U.S. government is in the worst financial shape it's ever been. Given that, right, the yields, the bond yields should be much higher given the likelihood that either inflation will really go up in the future because we have to flate away debt that we can't repay or we default because we can't pay and there's a restructuring or some kind of loss. But the fact that prices are so high despite the fact that fundamentals are so low is clear evidence, indisputable evidence that the treasury bond market is a bubble. Yet despite that undefutable, crystal clear evidence of a bubble, every person on that CNBC panel agreed that the treasury bond market wasn't a bubble. Now, some of them said, well, you know, we think the prices are a little high, but you know, it's kind of justified because people are looking for safe havens. And so they're, they wanna find a place to park their money that's safe, and so they're parking it in the safest asset there is, U.S. Treasuries, so therefore it's not a bubble. But anybody buying U.S. Treasury bonds at the highest price in history with the lowest yield in history, when that yield is actually negative and you are guaranteed to lose money after inflation, anybody who is doing that, and on top of which the fiscal position of the United States has deteriorated so dramatically and we have never been in this bad shape. In other words, our credit quality has never been this low. Anybody buying our debt at these prices 
thinking they're doing something safe is a complete fool. And that is exactly what defines a bubble. When people just do foolish things, they throw caution to the wind and they pile into a trade uh, at the top. And again, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to go to this insanity. But for these guys on CNBC, not to see that this is a bubble is amazing. In fact, I don't think there's ever been a bubble that CNBC has been able to spot, whether it was the dot-com bubble in the 1990s or, you know, the crypto bubble now. They cheerlead every single bubble that has ever inflated. Now, turning to the foreign exchange markets, the U.S. dollar finally had a down day. It had been on a bit of a tear. Uh, Today, it was down about 50 basis points, uh, just off the lows of the day. I think I saw it down a little over 60 basis points. The dollar index, though, still above 99, 99.33, and it's still positive on the week. But one of the reasons that the dollar was down, and it was down before the economic data came out, but we got the uh, PMI number, the composite number for February. And in January, it was at 53.1. And the expectation was for a slight decline to 52.5. Well, we got a decline, but there was nothing slight about it. We plunged all the way down to 49.6 which is the first time that index has been in contraction in more than six years, right? So this is supposedly the greatest economy ever, yet for the first time in six years, in the greatest economy ever, this PMI index shows that our economy is in fact contracting. And even more problematic is that the service sector is even weaker than manufacturing, which everybody thinks is completely immune. That one was supposed to go up. The service PMI was 53.2 in January, and that was supposed to notch up to 53.3. Instead, it collapsed all the way down to 49.4, which is lower than the the composite because it was weaker than manufacturing. So that is a big deal because the service sector is a much bigger part of U.S. GDP. In fact, Larry Kudlow was also on CNBC. Obviously, I spent a lot of time watching it today. You know, that's where I get all this foolish information to work into my podcast. You know, I get a lot of material there. But uh, Kudlow was on, talking about how great the economy is, talked about some of the economic data that came out yesterday that was a little bit better than expected, but not a word, not a word about the PMI numbers that came out today, even though he was on television uh, a couple of hours after the numbers came out. They never even came up. All he talked about was this BS about how this is a booming economy, the greatest ever. It's, you know, pure, pure propaganda. So after this uh, number came out, the dollar came into some additional selling. So there was some selling pressure on and it went down. But the real big story is the gold market, which had been rising all week despite the rise in the dollar. Well, today, gold got a little bit of help from a weak dollar. In fact, at one point today, we were up almost $30 an ounce. We didn't close uh, quite on the highs. I'm looking at the price right now, and we ended up up about $23, know, We almost got up to $16.50, and a little bit of resistance there. I, my guess is we'll take that out next week, but we're now up 8%, maybe a little bit more, on the price of gold so far this year. And finally, the gold stocks were showing 
a little bit of life. The GDX, which is an index of senior gold miners, that index was up a little bit more than 8% on the week. And the GDXJ was almost up 10% on the week. But still, these stocks are badly lagging uh, where they should be, given how strong the gold market is. Because the GDXJ now, year-to-date, is also up about 8%. And, or the, and the GDX is only up about 6%. So the junior mining stocks are about up the same percent as gold. And the seniors are up a smaller percent than the metal that they're mining. Now, this doesn't normally happen uh, when gold's going up. I mentioned on an earlier podcast when uh, gold prices were up 5.5% in January of 2016, gold stocks were up 20% that month. They were up about three times uh, the increase in the price of gold. And in fact, if gold gets up to 1,900, right? Forget about 2,000, right? Which uh, is the the price target uh, that I mentioned yesterday from Citibank. And by the way, uh, Akash Doshi, who is the Citibank analyst, he actually called me up today and I had a nice chat with him. And the reason he called, number one, is he wanted to thank me for uh, you know mentioning his call on my podcast. He is a listener and has been for quite some time to my podcast, but he also wanted to correct uh, a, a false impression that I had and that I gave to my listeners, which was that he just came up with that call yesterday, which is what I believed, and it's kind of how the CNBC crew uh, presented it. In fact, he told me he was initially scheduled to be on uh, CNBC yesterday to uh, you know talk about that call, but because of the uh, Morgan Stanley buyout of E Trade, that kind of you know trumped his story, and so he 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 got uh, kicked off. And you know that that's happened to me. That happens a lot uh, when live news, some new news breaks, and you kind of redo uh, you know your story for the day and you change your guests around. But what he told me was that he actually made that two thousand dollar call you know in that time horizon last year so the price was quite a bit lower and you know none of this uh, coronavirus stuff was even happening before he made that two thousand dollar call so he wanted me to know that he didn't just make the call that he's had the call for a little while and so i want everybody to know that that yeah and so that makes the call even more prescient and by the way i think he was of all the analysts on wall street he said that he won last year for being the best analyst on his prediction as to what the price of gold would do during 2019 was the closest to what it actually did. So he won as top analyst. So, uh, you know, kudos to him. But anyway, what I was saying was, if we just get up to 1900, forget about 2000, because I think 1900 was about the record high. We never actually made it to 2000. That's only about 15% from where we are now. But if you go back to gold stocks, where they were the last time gold was 15% higher than it is now, they would have to double or more than double. So if we get a 15% move up in gold, gold stocks have to go up about seven times that amount to get back to where they were the last time gold's price was 15% higher than the current price. So this is still an incredible uh, buying opportunity for gold stocks. I think people are completely clueless 
uh, to what's going on. They're shell-shocked. They're not buying these stocks. One of these days, they're going to. And by the way, silver was only up about 16 cents today, so not a very big move. It's around $18.50 an ounce. So that thing hasn't even exploded yet. It will. So the silver stocks are not really participating. Uh, they're up a little bit, but it's the gold stocks that are getting all the interest because gold is the metal that is moving. Uh, but this is going to be a huge precious metal story. And it's not a short-term story. It's not just because of the coronavirus. You know, the coronavirus has also been putting a bid in the dollar as people are mistaking that for a safe haven. That's actually been a headwind for gold. Uh, so had the dollar not been strengthening, uh, had it been weakening, then the price of gold would probably be even higher. But as I said on yesterday's podcast, people need to buy these gold stocks uh, you know, they did buy my gold fund, the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. Obviously, I'm biased. You know, that's my fund, but I think I've got the best manager. I mean, it, I hired the guy to manage the portfolio. And by the way, I'm the biggest shareholder of my gold fund. And so I wanted to have the best manager managing my own money. And so that's Adrian Day. If I thought somebody else was better, I would have hired them. Uh, so, you know, I don't even think it's a, it's a biased opinion. Uh, so that's what people should be doing is uh, is buying my buying my gold fund, but also buying physical gold. You know, I thought it was funny. I put out some tweet today on gold. And of course, I tweet about a lot of things. But I noticed one of the comments, somebody, you know, gets on there and says, oh, anybody who bought gold from Peter Schiff at any point has lost a fortune or they're, they're missing out. They're losing a bunch of money. Don't listen to this guy. And it's like, what is he talking about? Who's lost money buying gold from me? I mean, yes, is it possible uh, that some people who didn't buy any gold until 2011 or 12 or whatever it was at 18, 1900, if that's the only gold they ever bought from me and they never bought any earlier and they never bought any later, yeah, then I guess, you know, there's a small percentage of people who are down, but that's not because they followed my advice because I would have told those people to average down. And in fact, I probably was telling them to buy gold for years and they waited for the absolute top before taking my advice and buying any of it. But if you go back to the beginning, I started recommending gold and selling gold actually to my clients, you know, about 20 years ago. You know, gold was under $300 an ounce when I started selling physical gold to my clients. It's 1640. How is that a bad thing? How have people lost money buying gold from me or buying gold because they heard me recommending it? You know, when I first started um, gold, it was long before I started Shift Gold. I didn't start Shift Gold until about 2010-ish, I think. But I started, I became a dealer with the Perth Mint in Australia. And I started selling the Perth Mint to my stock brokerage clients. And believe me, I had a big problem. You know, the SEC came in and audited me and they, they, they were going to charge me with selling unregistered securities. They said, hey, you're selling securities and they're not registered. And I said, these aren't securities. This is a, a receipt uh, for storage of gold. And, and, and first they said, oh, we think they're securities. So I had to go hire a lawyer. I got a legal opinion. And eventually I was able to prove to the SEC that they weren't securities. They finally agreed with me after I spent a bunch of money on lawyers, right? They finally agreed with me and then they they, they let me off the hook, right? Because now, now they said, okay, I guess we were wrong. Uh, they're not unregistered securities, which they were not. But so I took a lot of flack from the regulators. 
But I really like that Perth Mint program and they have an unallocated storage program where you can store gold and there's no storage fee. The fee is zero. Uh, and I trust them. I mean, they're reinsured through Lloyds of London. Uh, the Perth Mint is owned by the government of Australia. I think they're a very uh, resource-friendly uh, government. So I think it's one of the safer places. And I've always recommended that not only do people diversify uh, in how they own gold, but to the extent that you're storing some gold, you should diversify where you store it. Just don't keep all your eggs in one basket. So keeping some of your gold eggs in the Perth Mint basket makes a lot of sense so if you want to learn about the program just you talk to the brokers at euro pacific capital and you know we're one of the only in fact we are the only perth mint dealer that can sell in california and a number of other states that are subject to the model state security code uh, other perth mint dealers legally can't sell in those states uh, but Euro Pacific Capital can. Uh, so if you have an account, you know, talk to uh, your broker or talk to Danny Dwyer at Euro Pacific because it's just another way that you can own physical gold as well as uh, physical silver, physical platinum, just like you could buy gold from Shift Gold and have it shipped to you. If you don't want to have to hold it personally, you want to have some in storage in a safe jurisdiction like Australia, uh, you can have some physical gold at the Perth Mint. Now, speaking about physical gold, you know, when I was at the Vancouver Resource Conference, I finally got my gold coin. Brett Johnson and I made a bet. You know, I made a video about that bet a year ago. Uh, I bet that the next move by the Fed would be to cut rates. And uh, Brett bet that the next move would be a rate hike. And we made that bet in early January of 2019. Of course, Brett was not alone. Pretty much everybody believed the Fed was going to hike rates. The question was how many times? Was it going to be three hikes? Was it going to be four hikes? And I was the only one on the panel and probably the only one in the world, really, or one of the few people who said that they weren't going to hike at all. In fact, they were going to cut. And the moderator was like, you know, so convinced I was wrong that he wanted me to bet Brett. Right. And he's obviously buddy, buddy with Brett. And he thought, hey, I'm going to give Brett some free money here by letting him take this sucker's bet here uh, with Peter Schiff, because I'm going to put him on the spot because he made such a dumb comment. Right. How can anybody think the Fed is going to cut rates? So we bet a gold coin and the Fed not only cut rates once, they cut rate three times. And and so I won. And so uh, this January in Vancouver, there was a panel and Brett paid off the bet. And so I just put the video of that panel up on my YouTube channel today. So after you finish listening to this podcast, if you haven't already watched it, go and watch on YouTube that, uh, that panel. But the interesting part about it is, so the uh, resource conference, they initially put up the video on their site. That's how I get it. I'm just copying it off of their site. So when they initially put it up, I went to watch it. And I noticed that the panel discussion kind of started maybe about three or four minutes into the panel. And the entire part about the bet where Brent pays me the coin, gives it to me, I take it, I put it in my pocket. We talk about the bet, you know, why he lost, why I won, you know, how I knew that the Fed was going to cut rates when everybody else thought they were going to hike. All that was missing. It had just been mysteriously cut out along with the introductions and they just started the discussion after that whole part. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's that's very convenient. How, how could they cut out uh, all that stuff? So I, I, I contacted them and they found some of the missing footage, not all of it, but they found about a minute 30 of footage that had been cut out. Now, there's even more than that. And apparently they looked around for it and mysteriously 
uh, that footage is gone. But what I was able to do is I was able to put together at least some of the footage that is missing from the video on their site and, and put it on my site. But the other thing too, which is really funny, you get a kick out of it when you watch it. And this part is still up there, right? Although they cut it out on the official site, but it's on, you know, it's part of the, the missing seconds that they gave me. And I, I, I made the longer one. But the moderator is so negative against me, and he's so biased, and you can see that. Go back and watch last year's panel in its entirety. The guy is totally anti-Peter Schiff, and he's totally on Brett's side. So the guy tries to pretend that I didn't win the bet, that Brett actually won the bet, even though he was wrong and I was right, and he gave me a gold coin. The guy's like, well, he didn't really lose, and he really got most of the bet right. And I mean, it's crazy. So you watch it, you'll get to see how this guy did not want to give me any credit for getting this thing right. I mean, what he should have said was, wow, Peter, that was a great call. I mean, nobody thought that. I mean, you really went on the limb and, you know, congratulations, you got that one right. You nailed it. No, no, no. He couldn't even bring himself to do that. So he had to pretend that the guy who lost the bet and had to pay me the gold coin, that he was actually the winner. And I still lost despite the fact that I got the coin. And, you know, don't forget, while you're listening to other Peter Schiff videos or interviews, make sure and listen to Liz Clayman's podcast. I mentioned it yesterday. Everyone talks to Liz. Uh, my most recent uh, interview with her, that's her last podcast. I think they're really trying to promote it now over at Fox. Uh, I sent them some pictures that they want to use in their marketing. So look, they're going to try to push this. Let's help them. Let's give it a push ourselves. Again, I think it's a very entertaining interview. I listened to it myself. A lot of stuff that I said, you know, I don't normally talk about. So, you know, I'm not just, you know, covering ground that you've heard many, many times. There's a lot of new stuff in there. So definitely uh, listen to the Liz Clayman uh, podcast. Uh, and, and let's really help drive up the, 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 the view counts or the listens on that to make this the number one podcast that she's ever done. But I want to finish up the podcast, though, by kind of going over investment performance, uh, particularly of my strategy, you know, my managed accounts or my mutual funds. Can't really get into too many specifics because of the regulators, but I just really want to make an important point here about perspective about uh, you know having a, 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 a view and the conviction to stand by it and why you need to tune out a lot of noise because in many cases the retail investor is his own worst enemy uh, because they act on emotion uh, they invest based on the rearview mirror and they're not willing to follow an investment strategy to its conclusion if it doesn't immediately work out, right? And they're going to abandon it. And, and that's what's been happening. And I have been voicing my frustration on this podcast for years regarding Euro-Pacific clients who have thrown in the towel, right? I mean, that has been happening pretty consistently over the last three years. Now, I mean, during that time, our assets under management have gone up, right? So we have more funds that we're managing than we did three years ago, despite those outflows. And that's because the funds have been going up. So it's not like we've lost so much money that we're managing you know, less. We're still managing more assets. It's just that we'd obviously have even more if those clients didn't make the mistake of pulling their money out. But you know, I'm not that upset personally. Sure, 
I'm going to earn a little less money because I'm not managing that money, but I don't care. I, I got plenty of money and, you know, I'm my biggest client and I'm, I'm, I'm doing great, I think, and I'm going to do even better in the future. But I feel very badly for these clients uh, who have, you know, cashed out their accounts. And the reason I want to bring it up is I'm looking at one of the funds in particular, uh, which is my value fund, your Pacific value fund. And that fund has done very, very poorly over the past five years. You know, a lot of people on the internet, you know, they want to give me shit about the fact that this fund has done so bad, right? Over the last five years, uh, I'm in the 96th percentile. That means of the 253 funds that have been in this category, and the category is international large cap value. And of the 253 funds that have a five-year track record, I'm in the bottom 4%, right? I'm, I'm stinking it up, right? I got one star. Uh, in, and over the last three years, almost as bad. I'm in the bottom 14%, right? I'm in the 86th percentile, and I got two stars. But still, I'm underperforming. And it doesn't take a lot, right? As of the, and these are the numbers as of um, yesterday. So the numbers are actually better today because I gained a lot of ground on uh, the indexes and you know my category today. But even though I was in the you know, the bottom 14 percentile, I had only underperformed the the category by 2.16% per year. And I'd underperformed the index by 1.7%. I mean, when you think about it, it's really not that much, you know, so it doesn't take a lot uh, to go from way underperforming to performing in line. And over the five years, I underperformed both the index and the category by 2.84% a year. Now, of course, over five years, that's about 12%. But again, I mean, it's not that much. And the reason there's such a small difference, uh, you know, between, you know, the best fund and the worst fund is the vast majority of these funds are really just mimicking the index. I mean, everybody is afraid to take a view, right? Nobody wants to go out on the limb uh, because they're worried they're going to get fired, right? So they, they don't want to perform uh, that differently than the averages. Now, they want to try to do a little bit better. So they, they take whatever the weighting is and, you know, they, they try to massage it slightly. So let's say something is weighted 10% in the index and they're really bullish on it. They might overweight it and go to like 11%, right? Have a little bit more underweight it, maybe go to 9%, but they're not going to get too far away in case they're wrong. And then, of course, what they might try to do is play around within the category. Maybe there's one particular company they think is a little bit better than another. So they'll have a little bit more of that one because they don't want to go too far from average. But they're hoping to be a little bit above uh, so they can beat, beat the benchmark, be, you know, be higher in the category. right? But for me, that's never been my goal. right? I don't care about short-term performance. I care about absolute long-term performance. I have a few about what I think is going to happen. And people who share that view have sent me their money, whether it's a small portion of their money, a large portion, or all their money. It depends on how committed they are to that view. I mean, if they believe 100% that I'm right and they just want to bet the farm on it, then there are people who have done that. If they're just not even sure, if they just want to have a little bit of money with me in case I'm right, well, then they sent me that. But I'm managing money based on a particular outcome, a particular long-term global macro view. And in the interim, I don't really care how I 
outperform relative to my competitors because I'm not going to fire myself. Now, the problem is my clients can fire me and some of them have or many of them have over the years because they forget why they sent me their money in the first place. You know, I've talked to a lot of clients, you know, when they're closing their accounts. And by the way, I have called every single client personally who has closed an account with Europe Pacific Capital. Every single one of them, even if I have never spoken to those people in the past, right? I talked to them, I gave them a call. And the goal, of course, was to try to convince them to hold on, right? Unless, you know, they were, they need, it, you know, sometimes there's an emergency, somebody dies, somebody gets divorced, or there, there's an illness and they need the money. And this is the only place they can get it. So in that case, you know, there's nothing to do. But I want to make sure that if somebody is closing their account because of past performance relative, let's say, to the U.S. stock market, and they're just going to take the money and invest it in a different strategy, most likely in the U.S. stock market, I want to talk some sense into that person. I want to try to save that person from themselves and prevent them from making a mistake, right? And some of the times I was successful, but many of the times I was not, and people ended up closing their accounts. But, you know, a lot of the people had told me, you know, I've been a big fan and a follower from a long time and I listen to your podcast and, you know, I'm going to still listen to it, but I, you know, I just can't wait any longer for the strategy to pay out, which A, never made sense to me because if you still believe that I'm right, then what difference does it make how long you have to wait? If I'm right, then you're better safe than sorry. You better be prepared. You better be early. It's only if you think that I'm wrong that you should change strategies. But if you're telling me you're just tired of waiting, I mean, so what? Wait as long as it takes, right? If you believe in it, right? Because the alternative is a disaster. I mean, what if you bail out on my strategy and several years later, everything I was saying comes true and you, you end up broke instead of, instead of rich, right? So if you disagree with me, but of course, I would always talk to the, the clients and remind them or ask them a question. Why did you start up your account with me in the first place? Whether it was five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. Why did you send me the money? And it was always because, you know, they shared my concerns. They were worried about the dollar. They were worried about the national debt, the U.S. economy and the Fed. And I would point out that every single concern that they had initially is actually worse now, right? I mean, if things had changed, right, if, you know, we had paid off a big chunk of the debt, if we were running budget surpluses, if we had entitlement reform and, you know, we tackled the Social Security and Medicare problem, if we were having trade surpluses now, if the Fed had successfully normalized rates, right? If all this good stuff had happened, you know, you could say, hey, Peter, I was worried about the U.S. economy, uh, but it turned out that these guys made all these correct decisions and, and now the economy is on sounder footing and I'm no longer concerned Oh, and by the way, you know, I think the U.S. stock market represents a, a good investment value because, you know, people didn't want to invest in the U.S. stock market when they sent me money because, A, they thought it was overpriced, and B, they were worried about these problems. Well, the problems are much bigger now than they were then, and the market is even more overpriced now. So if you didn't want to buy U.S. stocks five years ago because you were worried about problems in the economy and you thought the market was too expensive, why would you want to buy them now? when the problems of the economy are worse and the market is even more expensive. See, that's what happens in a mania because eventually even the people who were doubting it capitulate and throw in the towel and join the party. And it's always a mistake. But anyway, a lot of these people told me that they would continue to listen to my podcast. So 
This is for those people. But of course, everybody can benefit. But if you had an account at Euro Pacific Capital and you made the mistake of closing it in the last year, the last two years, the last three years, which is when everybody was doing it, you need to reverse that mistake and you need to get your money back before the mistake becomes even more costly. And here's why I want to point that out. So I'm talking about this value fund, right? So, and I'm looking at, this is, these are yesterday's numbers, which are going to be even better uh, after today's data is, because today is probably the biggest gap of outperformance. I think our, the fund was up about 1% today, my value fund, while the uh, benchmark or the category is going to be down a half a percent. So I'm going to outperform by 150 basis points in a single day, right? Which is an incredible amount because that, that rarely happens because these funds are so similar to one another. Because as I said, nobody wants to go out on a limb. So there's not that much difference between the funds, except there's a huge difference between my fund. So if you look at it, yesterday, my fund was the number one fund or in the top 1%, right? And the top 1%, there's 355 funds in the category now. So it's, you know, 100 funds have added or so since five years ago. But the top 1% would be three funds, right? Well, my fund was in the top 1% yesterday, right? And it beat the category by about 0.7%. So I beat the category by about half as much as I beat it today. And I was still in the top 1% yesterday. So I'm clearly in the top 1% today. In fact, I think I'm the number one fund. I'm not just in the top 1%. I think I'm the best fund out of the 355. But not only was I in the number one category for uh, day one, but for the week, I'm number one. And I will be number one for this week. I am number one for the month. I am number one for the past three months, and I am number one year to date, or in the top 1%. And if you go back an entire year, which is you know 52 weeks, as of yesterday, I was in the top 16 percentile, which is pretty good, right? Top 16 percentile. As of today, my guess is I could be number one. We'll know tomorrow, but I think today's outperformance was so good that I could be number one. Now, at a minimum, I'm probably somewhere in the, in, the, in the top five percentile or maybe higher, but there's a shot that I went all the way up to number one. But obviously, three-year, five-year, I am still uh, badly lagging. But I believe, and again, this is just my belief, right? None of this is guaranteed by any means. I could be completely wrong. Uh, my fund could collapse. You know, I could end up being the worst performing fund, right? But I think that by the end of this year, my fund, this fund, which was so bad, right, when the year started, right, the worst fund in the category, I think this fund is not only going to be number one for the year of uh, 2020, I think it will be number one over the past three years and number one over the past five years. And I think Morningstar is going to have to go from a one star to a five star on this fund. Now, again, this is just what I think is going to happen because I think the trends that we're seeing now, the move up in gold stocks and the allocation or the shift from momentum to value is finally going to favor my strategy, which is so different than the average for this category. And I think all of the underperformance of uh, you know, the first four years 
will be completely made up in the fifth year. And so my point is, if that is the case, right? If my hunch turns out to be correct, and again, no guarantees, so I'm not guaranteeing anything. And if you're gonna buy this fund, read the prospectus, make sure you understand all of the risks, right? Uh, but let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, say that I am correct, because I could be, right? I could be right, could be wrong. But if I'm right, and if at the end of this year, and it could happen earlier, it could happen before the end of the third quarter. But if I end up the number one fund over five years, does that mean that I was wrong to have recommended that people buy that fund five years ago? No. Does it mean that I did a bad job of managing it because I underperformed for the first four years and then killed it in the fifth? No, I mean, not if you held onto it for all five years, not if you were a long-term investor and you saw the strategy through. So it wasn't that I made a mistake in putting clients into the fund. It was that clients made a mistake of getting out of the fund, right? I might've put them in too early, but that wasn't a mistake if they ended up making money. The mistake was getting out too early and missing out on making the money. Now, you could certainly say that my advice wasn't perfect. I mean, obviously I could have said, buy something else. I could have said, hey, put all your money uh, in a different fund or put all your money in the NASDAQ, which of course my clients didn't want to do, which is why they sent it to me. But now, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, they kind of wish they had, and some of them want to blame me for that decision. But obviously had I say, hey, let's, 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 let's be in this bubble for a while. And had I stayed in the US markets or the NASDAQ, and then, you know, a few months ago or whenever, put everybody into this fund, yes, that would have been better. But who the hell is going to do that? I mean, nobody expects perfection. If I am uh, positioning people for a long-term outcome, then I'm a long-term investor. And as I said, I'd rather be early than late. I'd rather be safe than sorry. And so if it turns out that over the five years, right, uh, that we end up number one, then it was right. And all of the clients that I worked so hard to keep from making a mistake, certainly for the ones where I was successful, then that's great. But more often than not, probably I ended up failing. But the point is that I, that I made uh, a bit earlier, if you're still listening to my podcast and you made the mistake of getting out, you can get back in. Because this is just the beginning, I think. I don't think I'm just gonna outperform for the next, for five years going back. I think over 10 years, five years later, I'll be number one over a 10 year time period. I think my strategy is only now beginning to kick in. You know, my strategy, had I had funds and managed accounts during the first decade of this century, I would have crushed it. From 2000 to 2010 was a fantastic time to be invested in commodities, gold, emerging markets, foreign currencies. Uh, they crushed the U.S. market during that decade. The next decade was a lousy year to be invested in those classes. And it was a great time to be invested in the U.S. stock market. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that. I didn't know that in 2010, uh, but I know it now, obviously. But I believe that this new decade is going to look a lot like the first decade of this century and nothing like the second. In fact, since the problems are much bigger now than they were in 2000, the bubble is much bigger. I think that the profits that people are going to make in gold stocks, emerging markets, uh, foreign uh, currencies, 
uh, commodities, I think the profits are going to be even bigger. So I think we have a long way to go. So even if you're having to come back in and buy into my funds or some of these stocks at higher prices than you sold, just it doesn't matter. Correct the mistake before it becomes a much, much bigger mistake. I mean, don't wait for my forecast of this fund being number one after five years. Don't wait for that to happen. Don't wait for the fund to have five stars before you buy it. Buy it while it still has one star, right? That's what the smart investors do. They buy uh, what's undervalued and out of favor. Now, of course, I'm going to make a lot more money because once my fund has five stars, right, and it is number one, and people start looking back who didn't own it, they're going to say, whoa, I want to buy this fund. Look how well it's done, right? And you know, So that's going to happen, and that is going to benefit me as an asset manager because now all of a sudden a lot of money is going to start flowing into my funds from people who never even heard of me. All they're going to do is look at the track record and say, man, why didn't I own some of that? Why didn't my broker tell me to buy that? Look how good that fund has done. So that's what I think is coming. But again, you know, that's for the regulators. That's my opinion, right? Read the prospectus. But anybody who owned my funds, right? If you sold them, you know, they have loads, you know, some of them are no load at discount brokers, but at your Pacific Capital, right? If you bought the fund and you paid a load, you have a year to buy it back load free, no load. And, you know, even if it's outside the year, I'll take it as a case by case basis, you know, probably, you know, waive the load uh, because I really want to make it easier for people to come back in. And so if that load is a barrier to entry, uh, we'll see what we can do about it. If you were in one of my wrap accounts, right, we already waived the loads anyway. So it costs you nothing to invest in my wrap accounts. I mean, obviously the stocks that have done the best have been the gold stocks. So those are going to be the most expensive to buy back. But you know what? They're still cheap as far as I'm concerned. So the sooner you could buy them back, the better. Uh, but in my wrap accounts, you know, there's no loads at all. If you had a separately managed account where I was managing a portfolio of stocks, remember in the managed accounts, we don't charge commissions. There are small transaction costs. They're not very high. So obviously we would have to incur those costs and pass them on uh, to rebuy all the stocks that you sold. But do it. Fix your mistake, right? Admit to the mistake. Yes, you know, sure. With the benefit of hindsight, I got people into my strategy too early. What can I do about it? I still feel confident that I did the right thing because I didn't lose faith in the strategy. I didn't give up. But what I'm suggesting is if you did give up, wake up, look at what's happening. Everything that's happening is validating everything I was saying. And just because it's taking longer for the markets to validate it, just because the Fed was able to kick the can down the road for many, many years longer than we thought, and just because the bubble got bigger and fools you know, uh, participated and greater fools kept getting greater and greater and greater, don't let that cloud your judgment. And see what's happening. Because a lot of people have always said, hey, Peter, you know, what's going to happen? You know, what's, your, what's the bell that rings? It's ringing. So much stuff has happened uh, recently, particularly last year with the Fed's about face and the abortion uh, uh, or aborting the attempt to normalize rates, the return to QE, even though they don't admit that they're doing it. Uh, those were some very clear signals that everything I had been saying has been right. So you can't wait, though, because by the time the markets validate everything that I've been saying, well, it's too late to invest in them. And the big things that really haven't happened yet that are really going to show you that, you know, the end is near 
is when the bond market starts to fall. I mean, so far, the U.S. bond market is making new highs. People are still making the mistaking belief, right, that U.S. bonds are a safe haven. So the bond market is not collapsing. The dollar is not collapsing. And so that means you still have more time. How much time? I don't know. But the window will close because people are going to wake up. And once the dollar and the bond market start to fall together, and when that happens, the price of gold is going to be rising much faster than it is now. When that happens, it's, you, know, you don't have much time. I mean, you may not even have enough time. If you're going to wait for that signal, you probably waited too long, and there's going to be nothing that you can do. So before the bottom drops out of the U.S. bond market and the U.S. dollar, get your money back, reestablish your account at Europe Pacific Capital. And of course, if you've never had an account, open one up, right? Uh, I think we've gone past all the hard part, right? I think it's smooth sailing from here on in. I think we're going to see many, many years of phenomenal returns. Uh, and if you already have an account and you were smart enough not to close it, add to it. And in fact, the people who are the smartest are the ones who have been adding all along. In fact, let's say that my funds had been going up all along, right? So let's say instead of stinking for the first four years and then killing it in the fifth year, what if the funds just steadily rose? Well, anybody who was adding over time, right? Well, they're better off because we underperformed for the first four years because that means as they were adding money, they were able to get more shares for their money. They were getting better prices on their stocks. They were getting better exchange rates. And so they have more money invested because the returns were back-end loaded. So it's actually a blessing in disguise. It's a gift horse that too many clients were looking in the mouth and turning down instead of just accepting it and, and taking advantage of it. But even if you haven't added, add now, because I still think we're very, very early. But again, I want to reiterate just as a disclosure, right? I could be completely wrong. You could lose a bunch of money if I'm wrong. And, and so don't invest in any of my funds, my mutual funds, my managed accounts, unless you're prepared to lose money if I'm wrong. But you know, if I'm right and you don't invest with me, you're also going to lose a lot of money. You're going to lose a fortune. Not only are you going to lose money, but the money you don't lose is going to lose a lot of its value if I'm right about the dollar. So there's risk no matter what you do. You just have to decide. Use your mind and decide which risks you want to assume and then, you know, you know, position your portfolio accordingly. So call up Europe Pacific Capital. Uh, Europac.com is the website, 800-727-7922. That is our 800 number if you don't know it. So give that a call, talk to your broker, and don't wait anymore, right? The longer you wait, I think, the more expensive it's gonna be. And if you're correcting a mistake, the bigger the mistake's gonna get and the more it's gonna cost you to make it right. Mm -hmm.